We've got two readings this evening. So Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, from verse 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the demonstration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people. Sorry. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all lost people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that, now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is God's word. Our Father God, we thank you for the glory of your gospel. And we pray that once again you would help us to see how beautiful your plan for the church is. That we might be excited about the part we get to play in your glorious plan of redemption. Amen. What is the most impressive thing you've done today? Or what do you think the most impressive achievement of your life is? If you wanted other people to be impressed by you, what would you post online? You're doing it all the time anyway, I know. But if, uh, if, you know, what one thing, what one thing do you think really is wow? Just properly wow. Well, according to Ephesians 3, the most impressive thing that you and I have done, that we ever do, is not a career achievement or an educational award or a sporting triumph. 
it is coming to church. And not because it's a miserable rainy day and you'd rather stay in and watch Netflix. No, it is coming to church whether the sun's shining or the rain is pouring. You see, the Holy Spirit is going to help us understand from Ephesians 3 that the church, the gathering together of God's people, is God's show of force in an unbelieving world. This right here, as ordinary as we are, this is God's show of force. The church is at the heart of God's plan for history. It's not some side event. It's not, well, we've got to give them something to do while we wait for Jesus to return. The church is at the very heart of God's plans because the church shows that both of the great divisions that humanity has brought into the world have been healed. The division between us and God. Well, you see that as we gather to church to meet with God, we show that that division has been healed by the death of Jesus. But as we gather together to do that, we are a visible, tangible demonstration that God's plan to reconcile all things under Jesus Christ is a plan that is winning. You're backing the right side of history when you join church, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and gathering with his people. The church proves that God will win. Now, uh, Paul was pretty excited about the church where we left off last week in the end of chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. So he starts a massive prayer. So chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And he's going to carry that on in verse 14. You'll see, For this reason I kneel before the Father and I pray for you. But he gets a, he, he sort of realizes, Oh, actually, hang on a second. There's a little bit more I need to say at this point. He wants them to understand a bit more about uh, his role and the church's role. He realizes that there's more to say. And he doesn't want them to be disheartened by his suffering and imprisonment. He's just said, um, 3-1, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I probably need to explain something about this so that you're not discouraged by me being a prisoner. And what he's going to do is show that by being part of the church, no matter the weakness of Paul, no matter the weakness of your ministers, no matter the weakness of Christianity in this country, as it might feel, you're on the right side of history and you're at the heart of God's plan for the universe. And so he digs a bit deeper into the wonderful nature of the church. And it really is important that you and I get clear on this because we will only be committed fully and deeply excited about being part of church if we really understand and get God's vision for what church is for and what church truly is. So we're going to learn what church is and what church is for. Okay, the first thing we see is the mystery of the gospel is Jew and Gentile united. You've got the points on the back of your sheet. So in the first reading we had from Isaiah 2, uh, God's promised a great temple that would be a place of unity for all the nations of the earth. They would come back to the one true God and they would learn peace with one another, all the warring nations of the world. And for a very, very short period, the King Solomon um, sort of just before 950 BC, for a very, very short period, some leaders of some nations came to Jerusalem to seek the truth of God. But it was only a few people, and it only lasted a little while. Now, the nations do then come in large numbers to the temple of God later on in the Old Testament. But they don't come in peace to batter their swords into plowshares. They come in war to destroy and loot and trample. 
So if you're a devout Jew at the end of the Old Testament period, you, you read the promise, the promise, the prophecy of Isaiah 2, of this great temple that the nations will flock to, and you slightly scratch your head. You think, all these great promises and absolutely no sign of how they can be fulfilled. You might say it is all just a mystery, a complete mystery. And this is where Paul comes in. Because he has had the privilege that God has revealed his plan to him. So 3 verse 2, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he's writing a circular letter. So not everybody that he's writing to has met him personally when he was living in Ephesus for a couple of years. And so they don't know his story about how he was miraculously converted from a God-hater to one who loved the Lord Jesus. And how God then uh, taught him his truth so that he could go out to the nations with it. Verse 3. That is the mystery. So surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 3, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written to you briefly. Now, as we said before, mystery is not something weird, it's something hidden. Something you can't work out for yourself until somebody tells you. Like those children, when Christmas Day comes, this box that you will fill for them will be a mystery until gloriously they get to open it and find hopefully more in it than that. Uh, and it'll be, it's a wonderful thing. The mystery is just something that until it's revealed to you, you just can't know what it is. And you can see that from four, verses 4 to 5, that that's exactly what he's saying. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So what is God's great plan to bring unity to the world, to heal the divisions of mankind? Well, humanity, left to ourselves, we see it's a problem and we've come up with lots of answers. Some say you just need the right political system. Others say you need the left political system, but you know, let's not get into that right now. Uh, Others say it's, keep up, keep up. Uh, Others say it's education. If you teach people If they learn, if they're educated, they won't fight. Others think the issue is really economic. If you can deal with the massive inequality of wealth and poverty, then all the conflict will end. Still others look to events like the World Cup and the Olympics and say there is something in the spirit of those those events that brings the nations together. We just need to work out how how to channel that. But the answer that God revealed to Paul is very different. Verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The answer to human conflict lies in the message of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. That is God's plan to reconcile humanity. There is no military victory There's no economic system. There's no social policy which will solve the conflicts of the world. The only true hope for reconciliation for humanity is Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel. That really is a mystery. In the sense that we would never have guessed it. If God had pulled out the heavenly flip chart and said, yeah, guys, humanity, gather around. Let's have a, let's have a, um, a brainstorm, thought shower session. How are we going to reconcile the world, guys? I guarantee you one thing that would never have been written up on that divine flip chart is send a Messiah to the Jewish people who will be rejected and killed in shame on a cross. 
How on earth can that heal the divisions of the world? Well, it, it does because God's reconciliation through Jesus Christ humbles us all. We saw this last week. Jew, Gentile, everybody must walk through the same door to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so as well as reconciling us vertically, dealing with our sin that we need forgiven by God, it also reconciles us horizontally. All of us have to bow before the same cross. The gospel doesn't privilege any particular culture or class of humanity. It doesn't privilege the wealthy or the intelligent. It doesn't even privilege the moral, the good. Because you can't buy it. It's not complex as if only clever people can work it out. And it has to come by grace because none of us are good enough to receive Jesus Christ and to earn our way into heaven. You don't have to learn a particular language or go to a particular place to find it. Anyone and everyone can access it. Because the message of Jesus is open to all. And it doesn't unite us in the, in the sort of shallow way that the Olympics and other sporting events do for a few glorious weeks. Because this unity, the unity of the gospel, goes right to the core of our being. Because it relates to how we relate to God. Our relationship with God is where it's grounded. So it is, it is far bigger and deeper than a, a shared sporting interest. And it doesn't unite us in a, in a way which leads us to become tribal and look down on others. Because the gospel calls the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, to be a people who have been called by grace. People defined by our awareness that I am an undeserving sinner. And as we said last week, you cannot look down on anybody when you're kneeling at the foot of the cross. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery that Paul writes about, is not just how on earth can we be reconciled to a God who is so perfect when we are so sinful. That's wonderfully answered in the death of Jesus for our sins. The mystery of the gospel is also how on earth can we be reconciled with all our squabbles and our division and our factions from our families and our relationships right the way up to our nation states. And the answer is seen in the church of Jesus Christ. As divisions are united. I remember my dad telling me when uh, he moved to the States, he joined a church and he joined a small group, um, Bible study group at the church, and uh, they were having a time of um, prayer at the end, saying, What are you particularly encouraged by? And, and, and they, the guy sat next to him, clearly had something sort of quite big on, here, on his chest, and he said, Well, uh, I'm, just, I'm just so thankful. I, today I've finally got over something just, that's been just so huge, and I. It's amazing, but today for the first time I've been able to, to sit in church and to see as a brother a man who is, well, there's no other word for it, a Democrat. <laughs> that was a, yeah. My dad was just, he was like, okay, wow, this is a different country. <laughs> but actually, you look, you look across the, the pond at the moment and you realize, oh, that's a big division. And yet in church, that division gets reconciled. Actually, we've had here uh, people who've been on the staff for um, deputy cabinet ministers and shadow cabinet ministers from opposite sides of the political spectrum. And they've been in the same, not just the same small group, but the same prayer triplet. And it was wonderful to see that what unites them in Christ was far bigger than what divided them politically. They were passionate about their politics. But what united them in Christ was far bigger. 
And actually, uh, as frighteningly tribal as politics has got, in one sense, those things pale into insignificance. If you go across to Jerusalem, we've got a link church there, the Jerusalem Alliance Church. You go there on a Sunday and you'll see Palestinian Muslim background believers singing the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ, literally arm in arm with Jewish background believers. At the cross, human divisions are reconciled. And that is why playing your full part in church is not an optional extra in Christianity. The church is at the very heart of God's purposes to heal this world. I wonder if you share that vision. The mystery of the gospel is Jew and Gentile united. Secondly, the ministry of the gospel means Christ's riches for all. Now, it's great that there is this message that through Jesus Christ, as verse 6 puts it, God is making one new body that all share together in the promises of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing, but it's only useful to you if somebody tells you about it. And this is where Paul comes in. And he reveals now that God doesn't just didn't just... Uh, save him and then reveal his truth to him, he also then commissioned him and sent him out to the nations with the truth of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Now what really shines out, I think, in these verses is the sense of awe and privilege that Paul has that me, I get to to be the one who tells people about Jesus. I get to be the one who hands out the presents at Christmas, is what he's saying. He calls his ministry a gift of God's grace in verse 7 and the grace given to me in verse 8, saying God has been so generous. And it relates, I think, to his comment in verse 8 that he's less than the least of all God's people. He is so aware of his failings, he makes up an entirely new word. The word less than the least is an entirely new, made-up word. Because he says, look, there is just no word to describe where I ought to fit in. And it's not false humility. In 1 Timothy 1, he says something similar. He says, look, I used to persecute. I used to throw Jesus' followers in prison. I used to help people kill them. Why would God save me? That he would be saved, he cannot believe. That he would get to have the privilege of being God's chosen apostle to take the message of Jesus out to the nations. He just can't believe he gets that privilege. You see, telling other people about Jesus is not something you have to do as a Christian. If you've been brought here by a Christian friend tonight, it's not because they're on a... a benefit scheme and the reward scheme and they get something. It's not because they're driven by guilt that it's something you just have to do. You know what? Telling other people that there is eternal life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, it is just, it's one of the greatest privileges we have. And if, if you're bored of them always going on about Jesus and trying to drag you to church, I'm sorry, but it is just worth it. If you discover what they've discovered about Jesus, you'll understand why they keep doing it. Jesus Christ is a wonderful, wonderful saviour. And Jesus' people will see it as a privilege to tell others about him. I love verse 8. 
Uh, look with me at verse 8. Although I am the least, less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. The gospel is righteousness, a right status before God for the guilty. It is relationship with God for the alienated. It is cleansing for those of us who know we're filthy inside. It is atonement for the sinner that we can come close again. It is bringing near those who are far away from God. It is also for the spiritually impoverished, the riches, the boundless riches of Jesus Christ. If, uh, if you've always lived in London and you've never looked on the internet, which would be a strange thing, but imagine if you had never looked on the internet, you've always lived in London, and so your only understanding of the sky at night is, is the low-flying lights of the planes coming to Heathrow. And then you get taken by a friend to this place in Oregon, and you look up. That is boundless riches revealed to you. I don't care how long you spend in Oregon and how big your telescope is. There are so many trillions of stars. You will never fully plumb the depths of the, glorious of the, the glories of the universe that is out there. But the gospel is something like that. It is limitless, boundless riches that we're just blind to until it's revealed, shared, told to us. And then we get to spend the rest of our days enjoying and digging into and learning more that we might enjoy it and know it better. Boundless riches, that's what Jesus Christ offers us. Now before moving on, it is interesting to ask, why is it that a guy who sees himself as less than the least doesn't have a a sort of ruined ego and a a sort of wrecked sense of self-esteem that leads him to be a pretty skewed, messed up character. How is it that if he thinks he's the scum of the earth, he is not beset by psychological problems? Why isn't he wallowing in despair? Well, the answer lies within the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't just say we are sinners. And it doesn't just reveal, the more we look at it, how deep and dark and ugly my sin is. The same gospel that reveals to Paul that he is utterly hopelessly, irredeemably wicked, says, oh, but God has redeemed you and God does love you and God forgives you. You see, the gospel teaches us not to ground our self-esteem in what I think about me or what others think about me, which is such a fragile thing. The gospel says, you can ground your self-esteem in this. What does God think about you? What did God think it was worth paying to bring you into his family? God thought it was worth the eternal son becoming human and hanging on a cross to die, shedding his blood so that you and I, unworthy sinners, could become children of God. When you know God loves you like that, not because he thought you were great, he knew you weren't. When you know that God has loved you like that in spite of everything he knows about us, then you have a solid rock on which to ground your self-esteem. And you can look into the ugliness of your heart and not be destroyed by it. You can be honest about who you are and not be wrecked. You can say, I am less than the least and yet be marked by joy and thanksgiving and hope. Now, we saw last week in chapter 2 that the church is the true temple of God. Turn back with me just to um, chapter 2, the last couple of verses. 
talking about if you trust in Jesus Christ and you're part of the church, and then verse 21, in him, that is in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church of which we are a part is the temple that was promised in Isaiah 2, through whom the people of all the nations come to God and find peace. This is why Paul is so excited about the church. Finally, that prophecy in Isaiah 2 is being answered in history in God's church. Around the world today, there are uh, hundreds of millions of people drawn from 13,000 different nations and people groups have churches in them. They will open Bibles in 1,642, 1,642 different languages they'll open Bibles in. And those, those churches will meet in every single country of the world, including Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Somalia, Yemen. God's great plan that Paul get, got to share is taking place all around the world right now. And you and I can join this gospel work, this glorious work of reconciliation, when we take the message of Jesus beyond people like us and share it with others. That's our privilege. Uh, Some from this church go out on Sunday afternoons um, in a group called Gospel Conversations. They go out and they talk to people on the streets of London and just ask them questions and get into conversations. And given the makeup of London, every week they have conversations with people who are from countries where you'd get imprisoned for having those conversations in that country. How exciting is that? Every week, uh, others help with International Cafe, hosting people from different nations here on Friday, sharing the gospel with them. And we've seen people baptized in church who became Christians at International Cafe, who are from countries where they would not have been allowed to hear the gospel. Still others here I know are looking at going abroad full-time as missionaries to countries in the world where there is no real gospel witness. There are very few Christians. A quarter of the world's population live in countries where they're just never going to meet another Christian because there are so few. But here's something for every single one of us. Every single one of us. Who will you invite to the carol services this year? Statistical surveys tell us that about 95% of people who are invited to carol services want to come. Almost everybody wants to come to carol services. They love them. So who are you going to invite? Why not this year invite at least one person who's from another country, another religion? Give them the opportunity to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gyms, our offices, our universities, our neighborhoods are full of the nations. People from all around the globe have come to London. And we have the privilege, we get to tell them about Jesus and invite them to hear. The ministry of the gospel means Christ's riches for all. And then finally, the wisdom of God is seen in the church. Now, Paul's stunning point in the last verses is that the church is God flexing his muscles, bizarrely. That's the image. He's saying, look, the church, when the church gathers, it's basically God flexing his biceps. Look at verses 10 to 12. I'm not going to try and um, depict that for obvious reasons. Um, 
His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are my glory. So the point here is that the church, in the church, the wisdom and the success, the victory of God, and his plan is seen in concrete form. And as the church gathers, God's opponents are intimidated. Their knees tremble. The devil's knees tremble as he looks at us tonight. Yes, really. <laughs> Let me explain why. Because the church is the visible, tangible demonstration that what God has always promised, that I will restore humanity back to me and back to one another. That that's always been God's plan. And the church is visible, tangible proof that God is doing it. And his victory, therefore, will take place. Uh, the, the word manifold, I think, is really rather wonderful that you see here in verse 10. It's the comparative form of the word that's used for the multicolored coat that Jacob gave to Joseph. So this is saying a really very multicolored um, coat. I don't know what that would look like. But anyway, it's a, he's saying, look, the church is, um, or the wisdom of God is very multicolored, very multifaceted. And I don't think it's an accident that Paul uses that particular word, a word with connotations of diversity. He could have just said the amazing wisdom of God, or the beautiful wisdom of God, the powerful wisdom of God, the confounding wisdom of God. But instead, he says, the multicolored, multifaceted wisdom of God. In other words, a wisdom that is seen increasingly clearly and gloriously as the gospel spreads further. In 33 AD, there were a few thousand Christians and every single one of them was from a Jewish background. Culturally, they were basically the same. Put up the next graphic. In uh, 1900... 1910, 66% of all Christians were in Europe. If you add in the Americas, basically over 90% of Christians were in the, what we now call the West. Fast forward 100 years and Christianity is split, spread. You couldn't say there is a Christian bit of the world. 36% of Christians in North and South America, 25% in Europe. 23% sub-Saharan Africa, 13% in Asia Pacific. The gospel is spreading everywhere. It is the multifaceted, multicolored wisdom of God. A testimony as the church gathers in every nation that here is the God who so loved the world that he gave his son. And that love is effective. More striking still than that the, uh, the church is the multicolored, multifaceted wisdom of God is who sees this wisdom. Look again at verse 10. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. When you skip forward to 6 verse 12, you see who he's talking about. 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's saying the demonic forces, the devil, and the forces of evil, they look at the church, and they see God's power. The, if you're... 
if you're ever bored, it's great to watch some of the, uh, the Soviet May Day parades or the North Korean or Chinese. It's, uh, they're amazing. These, it's basically, they just get loads of... Uh, it seems to be that the, uh, the more serious you are about your dictatorship, the higher the legs have to go when people march. That's the, uh, and the bigger the missiles on the trucks have to be. I suspect some of them are cardboard, but anyway, they're, they're, you, you, know, you know the things, these massive parades and huge tanks and, and trucks and, and soldiers everywhere. And what's the point of them? The point of them is not to encourage the, the party faithful. The point of them is that the other nations look on and think, ooh, yeah, not going not to take them on, are we? That's why they do it. Every country does it. You know, we, we have uh, military exercises in areas of the world where we want to show that, uh, well, you know, we know what we're doing. Don't take us on. That's why we do them. Uh, China is doing them in the South China Sea because that's an area of dispute. You put on your show of force. You display your military might. And the aim is that, you're, that those who might be tempted to push things with you realize, ooh, yeah, their tanks look pretty good. Their missiles are rather big. Their soldiers can kick very high indeed. We're we're, we're not going to take them on. God doesn't hold his parade once a year. He does it every single week. And his version of an intimidating show of force doesn't involve tanks or fighter jets. It is millions of church services around the globe. Us, gathered here tonight, this is God's show of force. This is God flexing his biceps. This is God intimidating the devil, and all powers of evil. When, when the devil and his evil forces get drunk on the racism and the genocide and the warfare and the assaults and the lying and the deceit and the brutality and the marital breakdown that is all around the globe, when they are drunk on what they think is their victory, God points to his church He points to you and me and says, you lose. Here are people that I've managed to reconcile to me. I've dealt with their sin and look how they're reconciled to each other. See, the church proves the victory of God and demonstrates it most powerfully when we, when we reflect the makeup of our local area, but we do not reflect the divisions. When we do that, we demonstrate God can heal what human power cannot. Division between locals and immigrants, different races, the well-off and the poor, those who speak and dress differently. The more that we reflect the makeup of the area but not the divisions, the more potent symbol we are of God's victory. The gospel never shines out quite so brightly as when church demonstrates the ability to reconcile divisions that the world cannot heal. And so verse 13, Paul says, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are your glory. Don't worry when Paul gets thrown in prison. The victory of God's not down to the success of his apostle or his ministers. It's down to the existence of his church. And I I guess most of us actually, deep down, even if we're embarrassed to admit it, we'd like to do something impressive in our lives. We'd love to do something impressive. I know people who've got medals in the Olympics, uh, who've been in the SAS and who've climbed Everest. All very impressive things. But if you want to do something truly impressive, 
eternally impressive? Well, you do that just by coming here every week, especially when you're on time. Uh, (laughs) It may not be, uh, I don't think it says that in the text. Uh, It may not be that impressive in the eyes of the world. You won't find crowds cheering you on as you come in. But the powers of darkness do see, and they quake, because as we gather, it proves to them that they lose, Jesus wins, and God will reconcile you and keep you safe for all eternity. When we share the gospel with people from other nations, so the church grows in its diversity and depth of love, the dark rulers of the heavenly realms, they see and they quake. When we step out of our cultural silos and our our little ideological bubbles and echo chambers and make friendships with people who think differently on things that matter to us, Satan is confounded. When we refuse to back away from friendships that have become difficult or marriages that have turned toxic and we pursue gospel reconciliation within our church family, the powers see said before I don't mean staying in situations of abuse but I do mean in all of us a willingness to die to self to see reconciliation when Satan sees that he knows that he has lost because he looks at people who are restored to God gathered in his presence to worship him restored to one another gathering to love and serve people who are different from them to forgive people who've wronged them When he sees that, well, he's seeing a foretaste of what will happen in heaven. And he knows he loses. God wins. And you are proof of that. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you would give us your perspective on the church. That we would see how glorious and rich and good it is. That you are gathering people in every nation of this world. And we pray that we would fight against the natural instinct just to hang around with people like us. And that we would, we would rejoice that we have the privilege of being able to share the gospel with others. And we would rejoice that we have the ability to be part of your power demonstration and to confound the forces of evil. Help us, we pray, even tonight, to show how different we are in the way that we treat those who are different from us the way that we treat those who have wronged us. And help us to do this because we rejoice in the privilege that we have to be part of your victory parade. Amen.